it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50-11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. I'm not really all that big into awards, even though I have an Emmy <laughs> and a Webby. And yes, that was a not so humble brag. The very nature of awards means your work is being judged through the prism of someone else's perspective. It's so subjective that even if it was something as prestigious as the Pulitzer Prize, the highest award a journalist could earn, at the end of the day, it's someone or some collective body's opinion of your work. That brings me to the word of the week, which is validation. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Now, a lot of black folks and some white folks were incensed because out of the 12 lead and supporting actor categories at the Emmys last week, not a single person of color won one category. Despite the fact that for the first time in history, people of color made up 44% of the nominations. They brought us to the party, but unfortunately, nobody had to hook up to get into VIP. Naturally, there are a lot of people who feel like I do about awards, that you just can't get caught up in someone else's validation or critique of your work. But as much as I believe that, I get why some people feel the opposite, particularly those actors and creators whose work is constantly under subjective review. As much as we don't like it, the scrutiny of their work matters for their livelihoods, for their careers. In particular, it can create opportunities, change perceptions, and hopefully give them leverage in certain situations. It's not about them needing to be praised and accepted by white people, but in a profession where these awards can carry weight, I can't blame some of them for feeling a little bit upset that their great work is going unrewarded. Now, I certainly can't blame the fans either because some of the work that they love and the favorite performance that they have, those shows aren't getting the adulation that they deserve. I mean, I'm still bothered by the fact that The Wire only received two Emmy nominations, both for Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series, and they didn't win. The brilliance of that series was completely overlooked, and it is upsetting that even though The Wire is routinely mentioned as the greatest television drama of all time, don't at me at your mama, those with the power to make those Emmy decisions treated this show so disrespectfully. Sometimes you get tired of not being seen. It's frustrating. Even though Ted Lasso is fantastic and they took home every award possible, as was Mayor of Easttown, which I'm telling you, get into it. People of color deserve better than what they got from the Emmys. Validation, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Now, my guest today actually is an Emmy winner and had no problem having her work celebrated. She won an Emmy last year for Outstanding Informative Talk Show Host and Outstanding Live Coverage. She's a longtime journalist who has become one of the most trusted voices in America. On her daily talk show, she informs, entertains, inspires, and of course, she gets some of the biggest names in the business. And I'm not just saying that because I've been on her show before. 
One thing I tell younger journalists and young people in general is that what's for you is for you. And nobody's career arc illustrates that more than my guest today. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Tamron Hall. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Tamron, you recently celebrated your birthday, correct? You are correct. Wikipedia says 1970, <laughs> September 16th. I was brought into the world and now I'm 51. Yeah. So how was your birthday? How, what did you do? It was great. It was low key. You know, last year was 50 and it was obviously the pandemic. So my husband is always very creative with these things. Like your husband, I see all the cute Instagram posts. So he surprised me with an outdoor uh, birthday party at Central Park for my 50th and we, he told me we were taking our son Moses to the park. I started walking up and I see this huge like cascade of balloons, which by the way, you're not supposed to have balloons in Central Park. And I'm like, wait a minute, who's breaking the law? And it was my husband. <laughs> it's all this huge balloons and about, I don't know, like 20 of uh, my best friends were all there from different parts of Jersey and New York and the area. And we were all outside and they had masks with my face on, which is creepy, but cute. And we celebrated outside this year. We did low key. We just went to Brooklyn. Um, there's a restaurant we like there that has a nice outdoor because we're we're still not eating inside. We I cannot convince him to eat inside. I don't think I can convince myself. So we were outside with some friends, small dinner. It was chill. It was great. And then the rest of the weekend I slept. Do you find that now you prefer low key birthdays? You know what? I am a low-key person in general. I think that I am better uh, suited for people who like intimate dinners with friends. I would much rather have dinner at home where my wine is not marked up $400, uh, (laughs) where I can talk as loud as I want and I don't have to worry about somebody at the next table writing something down that I said. But even prior to going into this TV life that we're both in, I I just I I think because I was an only child for eight years. And um, my family's blended. So my sister who passed away and our older brother, that's what that was my my stepfather, who's the dad that raised me, his kids. And then my mother had myself and Todd and Todd and I are eight years apart. So I was at home a great period of time playing Monopoly by myself. I play against myself and connect for and beat myself. So I lived uh, not a lonely childhood. I wouldn't describe it as that because I had cousins who were like my big sisters and, you know, my play cousins and everybody. I had a big extended family, but within the home, uh, it was just me and my mom for many years. And so I think that's my core foundation. I just like intimacy. I like one-on-one. I like 
a dinner party more than eight, I don't really need, you know, so I, I just kind of vibe that way. I'm trying to figure out how you play Monopoly solo. That <laughs> now that is the track. Now I said I didn't have a lonely childhood, but then I dropped that. That was you lonely. did. Like, I have to say that that made me feel like right. <laughs> <laughs> you cheating? No, you cheating? What you mean? <laughs> were were you negotiating with yourself? Is that what was happening? <laughs> Listen, it might have taught me some tricks in this business. Go in negotiating with yourself, not with the person across from you. But no, I just it was an interesting childhood, but not one that was lonely, but definitely. Playing Monopoly by yourself is not the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I grew up as an only child as well. My mother's only child. And uh, we're similar because I believe your mother had you when she was 19. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. My mother was 19. My mother had me when she was 18. So when you have oh, that, wow. those young moms, like people don't understand that that puts a different dynamic on the relationship. Correct. Absolutely. I tell people all the time in my, my friend circle, my mom and I, we share this best friend bracelet. And it's true. I, I, I got emotional uh, for my birthday, Jamil, because my mother every birthday calls and she recites the first contraction until I was born, as if it happened yesterday. She's like, well, about 30, um, your pawpaw came in the room and I said, daddy. And she tells me this whole country story about how I was taken to the hospital. I was the only child born in Luling, Texas that day. Um, and I got emotional thinking about now she's 71. And to your point about your mom, we knew them when they were babies. We knew them when they were 20, 22, 25, 27. I, I look back at a picture of my mom and her and her sisters out at the club. You know, they used to go to this little club called the Tip Top. And they looked like the Supremes and they had their wigs on because I grew up with the white styrofoam wig that they put the wig on. And they were all dressed up in their platform shoes and I think my mom even had a cigarette in one picture. I'm like, used to smoke. She's like, everybody smoked back then. But watching now through the lens of my life at 51 and realizing that she was a baby, they were babies raising us. My mother would go to school and then at night work as a cake decorator at a grocery store at night. And then my aunt's sister would pick me up. And then my aunt Katie Mae would pick me up from school. And, you know, and this whole village of women who helped my mother and only now at 51 do I realize the magnitude of this young black woman and why she is so proud of me. Sometimes I say, Mama, stop bragging on me. She'll go to the airport. I might say, you know, too, no, I don't like Mom, stop bragging on me. What is wrong with you? Between you and Tina Knowles, y'all the most bragging mamas I've ever seen. <laughs> and now I get why she's so proud because she, as you pointed out, that dynamic of our of our relationship was so very different than the one I will have with Moses. You know, I'm 48 when he came into the world, but she was a baby and she was my friend and is still my best friend. And it's now sinking into me more than ever before what it must have been like for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you think about all the, the challenges you face and what your mom faced was 20 fold it was bigger than than that listen every time somebody tells me oh it must be really hard and don't get me wrong the daily schedule and we talk about our lives a lot you and i and the daily schedule is real and it's a grind and last night i saw my son for probably 15 minutes um by the time i got home he was already getting in bed so when i got up this morning i felt guilty so i crawled in the crib with him because he has a toddler bed now so i can fit in the toddler bed with him and he's looking at me like girl your guys bed ain't big enough for us but I, I was so needy and needing to see him. So we definitely have our challenges. But when I think about my grandfather had a second grade education, he was forced out of school so that he could take care of his mother um, after his father died. 
And then my mom lost her mother at age 10 and having to be a 20 year old leaving a small town and go to Dallas, Fort Worth to try to figure out her life with her kid. Like, what is it, Jay-Z song? I, I do this in my sleep, man. You know, I, I, I can do this in my sleep. I don't know how she mustered up the courage to work at a factory. She worked at a leather factory job, Tandy Leather, putting buttons on leather. And then, as I said, go to the, the grocery store, do cakes, and then was still trying to study to finish school with a kid no parent manual on how to be a single mom, all of that. Like, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. It brings me to tears because I know, I know she went through it. Yeah. And um, it, it further solidifies why women are really amazing. Um, just to even birth us at all. I'm just like, I don't even know why y'all chose to do this, but yeah, <laughs> but, but thank you. You know, I'm sure. Right. And keep us around when we go through our ungrateful years. I like, know. You know? <laughs> oh, my mom, my mom, I grew up, I'm older than you. My mom used to play this song, No Charge, for the nine months I carried you. And then this whole mom is lecturing the kid because it's, it's a gospel song. And all the little kid wanted, I think, was an allowance. And the whole song lays out all the reasons why you don't get an allowance. And it was the nine months I carried you, no charge. And my mother would play this song. <laughs> like, dang, I'm like, mom, on, on the sitcoms, the kids get allowance. And now you got, went to some you know, gospel song to make me feel real guilty about asking you for a quarter. So it's, 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 a, it's an interesting childhood growing up Southern and Black, for sure. You were talking about Moses. Um, I saw that he recently had his first day of school. How did you handle it? You know what? I think if we didn't have the pandemic, Jamil, I would have been a wreck like everyone else, right? When you take your kid away to school. But we've been locked down and I had to keep really strict quarantine rules because I have 200 people working under the Tamara Hall show that depend on me. And if I had gotten sick, then that affected everything. And so for me, I carried that responsibility um, very seriously, you know, and so, and also obviously for my family, but there was this extra layer of this extended work family. So we're all hostage in the house all day long with him. And he had his first play date. Uh, so he, the pandemic was nine months when it happened. He had his first play date just after the age of two. And I saw him around other kids and I was like, he needs this, right? So it changed how I felt about first day. I was excited to see what he would be like around other people. My son has a swagger walk and I know now I'm the bragging mom. My boy, I eat your mom. <laughs> Moses has this swaggy walk about him. And I thought, wow, because he's so confident around us. Will he be that confident around other kids? And this is the launch of, my little rocket into his own galaxy. So I took on a different feeling about it than I would if this pandemic had happened. But I was still sad, of course, but not in the way that I would have been. Did you always think you would have kids later in life? I never thought I'd have a kid. No, uh, never thought I would have a child. I had had I've been engaged in, in long term relationships at different points in my life and at different points in my life. I tried and it didn't happen for me. And so I just thought, and even, I have an aunt who just celebrated her 80 plus birthday. She won't let me say, she was like, you know, I'm happy the Lord let me stick around. Cause we didn't even know he was on his way. Moses, we, we, I wouldn't have met him, you know, and my family is very sentimental that way, but it wasn't something that I thought was possible. So it wasn't something that really entered my head. And then I met my husband and on our first little meeting, he jokingly said something inappropriate about like, let's go try to have kids. I'm like, dude, I just met you. And I don't know, what, what is, who are you? I'm like, uh, inappropriate. And so I said, you know, well, I don't think that's obviously possible. Ha ha. And we moved on from the conversation. And then later 
we circled back to it. And a friend of mine said, you should go to this IVF doctor. And I went to this particular clinic and Jamil, I went in and it was, there were so many women in there and it was a long wait and it was depressing because I was just like, there is no hope. I felt like I was at a fast food line. You know, sometimes you pull up to Starbucks and the line is around the corner. You're like, I don't really want that coffee after all. I felt, I walked in and I was like, I'm, I'm good. I don't want to go down this journey. I, I don't, I'm fine. And then a, another friend said, why don't you go to this doctor? He's really, really knowledgeable. And um, he might, you know, have some answers for you if you're really curious. And so Stephen said, let's go. And then we started really with me. And I, I have never asked him, Jamil, but I'm sure he didn't think it was going to happen either. So it was like, okay, let's try. I was off work. I wasn't working. I was pitching the show and I was selling the show, but I wasn't on daily TV. I was the most relaxed, even though I was unemployed than I'd ever been. I've worked since I was 14, but I was the most emotionally unattached from work that I'd been my entire life. And so when we went in, it just, it happened so fast. We had unsuccessful rounds and then I remember driving in Harlem and I saw this sign about um, black adoption and I said, oh, that's a sign, literal sign. And then I learned right after that, I actually, uh, that our pregnancy had taken. And I was like, oh, okay, well, there's another sign. So maybe it means I'm going to have a baby and then, you know, adopt a baby. Oh, okay, great. And so, but no, I didn't, the core of your question was, I didn't expect it. I didn't think about it a lot. I was the great aunt, right? I have three nieces and a nephew who, the oldest is 23. He works for the Dallas Cowboys uh, in sales. And you might have mixed emotions about that Dallas Cowboy thing, but he does. And Maya is 22. She's studying to be an esthetician. Gianna is 14 and Layla's 11. And they were my children. They've not, Isaiah has not taken a vacation without me. And he's 24. So they were my kids and they always saw me and, and I were always in my life. So they satisfied that desire to care for someone outside of my home. They certainly uh, depleted my bank account like a parent would feel. So they were, I, I mean, they satisfied a lot. And I was, I was the exceptional aunt that so many women, particularly Black women, have evolved to be. And I was okay with that. You mentioned you had been in long-term relationships and uh, maybe before you gotten close to marriage. Um, in terms of marriage, were you thinking that that wasn't going to happen either? Or were you still hopeful that you would? I knew a lot of things about it. I didn't want it. I did. I didn't. I didn't. Sometimes I wanted him and he didn't want me. I mean, there's a lot of layers to it. There were different versions of the story, but none of them were like, ah, no, I ain't going to get married. I just, I got close. I accepted rings. I accepted some rings that I knew wasn't going to turn into marriage because I had no intention, but I didn't know how to say no to this poor man on his knee asking me. So there were many versions of it. Um, but none of it included me saying it's off the table. I'm sure in my mid thirties or, but I think between 35 and 37, I definitely went through that fear of failed relationships. I was like, I'm not, I'm good. And I don't even think, I think that was more of me saying to myself, I was afraid of another failed situation that like bringing somebody in your life, letting them meet your friends and family. It doesn't work out much like IVF fear of failure there. But I stay on my show all the time because a big part of the daytime talk show world is relationships. And a lot of shows um, had moved away from it. I tell people all the time prior to my show, the only two shows that talked about relationships were Dr. Phil and Steve Harvey. And you don't want either one of them necessarily in the middle of your situation. So <laughs> no, you do not. <laughs> so we started exploring relationships because I have girlfriends 
who will say, I don't want to be in a relationship. And I said, but it's okay to say you do, right? It's okay to say, I want a man in my life or a partner in my life or a woman in my, whatever it is that you want, it's okay. And I think that, again, going back to my childhood, and I'm a woman of a certain age, I was raised to be an independent woman. You can do bad by yourself. If you bring the wrong one in, your bills double, your rent double, why? And so while I embraced that message that my mother gave to me being a single mom and she didn't want me to be dependent upon it, it also can come at a cost where you don't allow yourself to have that vulnerable moment of saying, yeah, I can do bad by myself. I don't need a man or I don't need a partner, but I want one. And I'm going to look for one. And I'm going to put myself at the bar with the good light just in case someone walks by. <laughs> and, you know, and so I've, that's been a big message to my friends and even to myself at some point in my life that it's okay to want to be married. And it's okay to say it. That doesn't mean that you're weak or that you're looking. You know, I, okay, it's okay to look. You might find it. Well, in your case, you didn't need good bar lighting because you had a whirlwind courtship. Okay. <laughs> Is it true that you and your husband, uh, he wasn't your husband then, y'all moved in together after three weeks? After three weeks. So I met my husband at an event. He was representing an actor and my husband's in music management. He's also on TV. He was executive producer of the Bernie Mac show. And now he represents a lot of music stars. And so he was there with someone and uh, he came over and he's like, oh, hey, how you doing? And my husband, I was like, you're trying to represent me? Because I, I mean, I'm going to be honest. He's a manager. He's a Jewish guy in New York. I'm like, he's trying to manage my career. He was fitting the profile to some degree. In the hoodie. I was like, okay, now we're, now we're just a caricature of a manager. And he said, um, this person was a fan of mine and, and wanted to go to lunch or something. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And I didn't even pay attention. And then I kept running into him at random events at an art gallery. I ran into him at a restaurant and he kept saying, what are the odds? And I'm like, I don't know. Are you following me over years? And then right after I left, um, NBC, Clive Davis had invited me to his Grammys party in LA. And I, said, fine, I do need a break. I need to get some fun. I want to wear a cute dress. I want to be on the red carpet. I'm just going to have fun. And I got on the plane and as luck would have it, a man that I had dated prior was on the plane too behind me. And he was with a woman. And in my 40 something years, I've never seen an ex with the new one ever. And she was beautiful. And I'm like, oh, I was about to ask Tamara, was she cute? She was tall, like a Russian model of Victoria's Secret wings. I'm like, is this real? And I'm like, oh my goodness, this man is behind me, right behind me with this woman. And there comes Stephen with his earphones on and his head in his hoodie. And he's last person to get on a plane, throwing his luggage. And I was like, this dude, right? This, and then he turns around and it's him and he's like, what are the odds? unbeknownst to him, I then use him as a distraction. So we just start talking. Poor guy, he's going to kill me for telling this story. So we start talking about life and whatnot. And, you know, I got off the plane, we talked some more, but nothing, nothing where I thought he was really trying to ask me out. Anyway, fast forward to June. Um, I'd been off air now five months. The opportunities that I thought would be coming my way were not. I'd had a pity party. I was just sad. I was in an emotional mess. And, and I read a quote once from Jennifer Aniston where she said, throw yourself a pity party and then get up. 
And then I went to the pool by myself. I put on an awful one piece because I don't know why I ended up having that. And then lo and behold, this guy walks up and it's Stephen. And he's like, what are the odds? I'm like, what are you doing in the pool area? You And he's like, oh, I'm meeting my friends here. Uh. So he sat down and I'll tell you, this is so true. He was next to me and he sat on my chaise chair, the little thing without asking. And I started to slowly pull my swimsuit cover up and start trying to finagle it over my body. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm Muslim and I'm not comfortable with being a <laughs> like, my husband thought I was Muslim for like a month because I lied. I eased up because I was like, why are you sitting this close to me? And I'm going to cover myself up. And then we just started talking and he said he loved pizza. He's from the Bronx. And he's like, I love pizza. And uh, I have the best pizza place in New York. And I'm like, no, you don't. And then whatever. So he asked me out for pizza and the rest was history. And we moved in three weeks after the pizza date. So my man must have had some game. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I'm like, three weeks? What? Oh, my God. You know what it was? I think that going back to what I said about being honest with yourself, right? It was the first time I was unemployed in my life. I was not seeing anyone. I was at that point in my life where I said, my mother was like, you know, you can come back to your room and stay here. And I'm like, well, that's not an option, you know? Uh, (laughs) And and in New York, you know, how long can you pay this kind of rent and not be, you know, I'm like, okay, I got to move somewhere. So I was looking at my what's next and it possibly wasn't going to be New York. That said, it gave me time in this weird way to acknowledge where I was in my life and acknowledge truly what I wanted beyond the resume. And I did want to share my life with someone in the way that my stepfather and my mother did. Um, I was there when my dad died and to watch their love at that last moment and their last goodbye was the purest love. My dad had been married three times. He is 25 years older than my mother. So on paper, I used to say, dad, what in the world? Who married this young woman, single mother with the, you know, but watching their love in that moment, I recognized a few things that labels can hold us back, that you can find love in the least, you know, likely places, and that it can truly make your journey better. And so those things I started to focus on and prioritize. So really, I I know he'd like to think that he had great game, and he would be on to dispute this, I'm sure. But I think it was emotionally where I was and where he was too, anywhere he was. And it just aligned at the right time. Well, that is a unique and beautiful love story. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said about how you know, you share with your audience. And that's the one thing I love about your show is that it makes, I think makes it stand apart from other shows is that you're very vulnerable. You're very candid uh, with your audience. Um, You guys, you're now in season three, but I'm curious as to what made you approach your show that way from the beginning. Well, I feel that, you know, I grew up with this term fair exchange, no robbery. And so meaning if I want you to talk to me, Jamil Hill, and tell me really what Jamil Hill is like, what your journey is like, your ups and downs. I have to give that too. And so when I looked at, you know, daytime TV in the past, that was a big part of what people, I think, who did it right, did. 
you got to bring you to the table. I can't ask you about your love life and I can't ask you about the pain or I can't ask you about the come up in the career if I'm not willing to share those things about myself. So I always knew going in that I would approach it that way. Now, it was been, it, I can't lie, it's been difficult because there are certain things I don't want to talk about. And, and, I, and I, I struggle with a few topics, not a lot, but a few personal things about my biological father, right? Um, those are things that I don't want. I also don't want to be Oh, here comes that celebrity with that sad story, you know, because that was that moniker for a while. And oh, my God, they always using this sad thing that happened in their life to promote something. So I didn't want to be that either. But I recognized I needed to be candid. And I'm 50. And I felt that at this point, if you can't speak it out loud at 50, when are you going to be able to speak it out loud? And I, I know that everything has a place, right? I know that everyone can't take, you have to you have to serve the message in different ways. Like So that's why we decided to kick off season three with um, the conversation about the mask mandate and critical race, right? I couldn't have done that show season one for a couple of reasons. The audience is getting to know me, right? And we already know, you know, how that's played, right? The, what is mainstream? What is middle America? And so I already recognized that. That didn't mean I leaned out of myself, not at all. But I said, okay, what are the topics? And I've been on cable for 10 years. I was kind of sick of it. To be honest, I was like, I'm like, I just want to laugh and talk about love. Right? So that's where I was emotionally because I just had my baby, right? So this is this new version of my life. And then with season three, being a journalist for 30 years. And yeah, I looked at the list of celebrities that we could ask on. There are many people that I would love to talk to that we you know, will talk to over the season. The two topics that kept coming in front of me that I was compelled to talk about were race in schools and masks. And I saw a connective tissue there because you people brawling at school board meetings that were reminiscent of when they were integrating schools. I mean, look at some of the images out of some of these school board meetings and put it next to Ruby Bridges. I mean, yes, that is far more horrific, but the, 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 the tone to the music is there. You hear it. And so that was important for me. And I said, okay, how do we have this conversation on daytime? Because they're having it on cable news. Jamil is having it on our podcast, but nobody's talking about it in, in daytime. And that's the uniqueness of this experience. I said, I got to meet people where they are. So we have a guy on who is anti-masks in schools, um, Mr. This is our liberty and all of this. So he didn't even have kids and he didn't have kids in the school. But how do I talk to him where he doesn't feel like that infamous interview I did with Scott Bayo, right? How do I talk to this man where, A, I'm not lecturing him, but I'm being real and authentic to say, I don't agree with a word that you've said, but I'm allowing him his voice as much as it's one I disagree with. So that's the difference in the MSNBC. That's the difference in the news version, which you try to play, oh, here are both sides of the argument. There's no, I, I know the side. And you need to put a mask on your kids. That's what I believe. So I didn't have to play the both sides. Today's show, Tamron Hall, I didn't have to be the MSNBC cable news where I'm gonna, we gonna get you right now and straighten you out on this show. Nothing, I could just be myself, which is, Someone who is always willing to hear your side, even when I strongly disagree. And that's when and how we started to kick off the season that way. And so now we have our critical race theory show. And I hate calling it that because half the people don't even know what critical race theory is. And it's just been turned into this boogeyman. But at the heart of that conversation was, when did we become afraid to teach kids about race? Because I grew up in Texas 
in sixth grade, we learned about the Holocaust. And the only person I knew who was Jewish prior to that was Jesus. And so here I am, this life-changing moment of learning about the Holocaust that changed my life in many ways in that educationally, but I didn't have to have someone say to me, that's wrong. That is what happened there and that the world let it happen. And only when the world aligned to end it, did we see change. So I knew the black story. I knew my story. I knew my grandfather's sharecropper story. I knew where my people came from, but this was my first real view of another group. And I learned that in the Texas school district and some of those same lessons, whether it's the Japanese internment or Ruby Bridges, they want to take out. How did we go in reverse? And so that's the core of that conversation mixed in with fun and fashion and all these other things, because that's what you do when you sit down with friends. But I wanted to bring that part of my background to the show season three. The critical race theory conversation is is not only troubling, um, but I think what people don't understand is that a knowledge of history creates empathy. 100%. It creates empathy. Like you just said, you learned about the Holocaust and that gave you a different perspective on another group. That's the entire point. And it was very scary because right before we sat down for this interview, I read about some of the things happening in Tennessee with critical race theory where they don't even want to teach about Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, we all know that if it was one black person that white and black people could agree that needed to be taught about, it used to be Martin Luther King Jr. But now he's too threatening for some of these school districts. And that is just inconceivable. And that's baffling. It's inconceivable. And it is, I mean, the National Civil Rights Museum is in Memphis. It's one of those beautiful educational experiences that anyone could encounter and that you don't want to have this curriculum in the public school that we all pay for is troubling. But to your point, empathy, now that I have a child, one of the lessons that they give you, they give you that, okay, make sure they play with teddy bears and dolls. And I thought, oh, okay, he's playing with teddy bears because they're cute, just think he's a friend. He's like, no, that's how you teach empathy. You know, here, feed Elmo. You know, it, it's something to care for. That is the beginning building bridges of empathy. And then once he can comprehend language and story, you tell them about other people. You tell them about how women couldn't vote and black women were the last to be able to vote. You teach them not so they feel bad. Listen, to deny the Holocaust in Germany is a crime. They teach the Holocaust in German schools. You don't think that some of those German people had relatives who were not the people you would want to know, but they don't say, okay, because your great, 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 great grandfather was in, you know, this particular, you know, whatever unit, we will never teach you about it. They say, actually, how we keep it from happening again is to teach that it happened. And so my question for that particular show wasn't about, okay, is critical race theory a legal term or teaching in college? It was, when did we become afraid of history? Because that's how I process it. And when your name is on the show, you get to talk about it, how you process it. And that's how I process it as a fear of learning. 
Yep, you better say that when your name is on the show. <laughs> you get to make the decisions. Um, all right, look, uh, Tamara, we're going to take a quick break because I have a lot more to talk to you about. So interested to hear about As the Wicked Watch, your new book that's coming out. I'm a big fiction fan. And because you made the, uh, the journalist the centerpiece, I'm all in. So we'll talk about that in a moment. More with Tamron Hall when we come back. Later in the podcast, I'm going to address an absurd debate that started on Twitter involving Drake and Michael Jackson. But first, I got a story to tell about Michael Jackson. So back in 1984, Michael Jackson and his brothers, otherwise known as the Jackson Five or the Jacksons, embarked on the Victory Tour. It was the only tour that featured all six brothers. Now, one of their tour stops was in Pontiac, Michigan, which is just outside of Detroit. I was eight years old at the time, and I was deeply, deeply in love with Michael Jackson. I mean, who was it? Realize at this time, Michael Jackson was everything. Thriller had just come out two years before, and I had that whole album memorized. I also had a Michael Jackson doll. I think I probably would have severed one of my arms to get that red leather jacket that Michael Jackson wore in Thriller. I had a Michael Jackson poster on the wall, the one where he had on like the yellow cardigan and a matching bow tie with some white pants. Y'all could not have told me that I wasn't going to marry that man. Anyway, so my mother was married to her first husband at the time, who was my first stepfather. For clarification, my mother never married my biological father. And so there's currently a second stepfather. Because the Jacksons, though, were coming to town, one of the local radio stations in Detroit they were running a contest where you could win free tickets to see the Jacksons. Now, my stepfather knew how much I love Michael Jackson and how much I wanted to go. So he did his damnness to win these tickets. He listened to the radio nonstop because it was one of those deals where if you were the 99th caller or some shit like that, you could win the tickets. Now, the old Bible believing folks will tell you that God knows the desires of your heart. So God must have known how much my little heart wanted to see Michael Jackson because the improbable, the impossible happened. My stepfather actually won those tickets off the radio. Now, I didn't know that part of the story until later. What I do know is that an eight-year-old me nearly peed my pants when my stepfather told my mother he had tickets for us to go see the Jacksons. I could not believe it. I started scheming ways to meet Michael Jackson, thinking maybe I could rush on stage or sneak backstage and hide in his dressing room. Of course, none of that shit happened. And man, listen, those seats were so far up in the Pontiac Silverdome, I needed some tissue because I am just stunned that my nose didn't start bleeding. Michael Jackson and his brothers looked like six ants just moving around in tandem. But it was one of the happiest moments of my childhood. Me and my mother had a great time. I screamed for two straight hours. I still rate that concert as one of the best concerts I've ever seen, simply because of how unlikely it was for me to have even been there in the first place. And another reason why I cherish that memory so much is because my stepfather, who later died from complications from the AIDS virus, and somebody I love dearly gave me an experience that I have still never forgotten and never will. And now more with Tamron Hall. 
you know, we were talking about your show and, and the, the topics you've chosen to dive into. And one of the things that was interesting that it's clear that now you're in a comfort zone with your show in season three. And there are things now you feel more comfortable talking about now than you did maybe in season one. And what other ways do you feel as if your show has evolved after three seasons? Well, I'll tell you, it's not that I was more or less comfortable. You have to figure out how to have the conversation, right? My comfort level with it was always what it was. I wasn't worried about, okay, if I bring a raise, then, you know, white people in Iowa won't watch me. That, that wasn't the, it was, how do I make it an effective conversation, right? Because as I said, I've been in the cable news world and we know what adversarial TV looks like. But I said, okay, how do I navigate it to have this conversation where it's a conversation? First season, as I said, was my start and I was a new mom. So there were, I, I was just excited to be back on TV, right? So there was a different emotional component to that first season. The second season, we had a pandemic. And we did a full hour call, Hear Us Now, where we focused completely on the assassination of George Floyd, but from the perspective of young people. I didn't want anybody on that show over 40. And so there were many powerful shows of that nature in season two. I felt this was new ground because it was in the studio. It was with an audience. And so we have that. So I think that's the evolution of the show that you would just naturally see. What else is changed? Listen, having that audience is is. Oh, I just left two tapings and it changes. It's like being in the room with your friends and you're all watching a big event together and you hear the, oh, what? We had a young man, we did a, a show called um, When There's a Third Party in the Middle of Your Relationship. Now that doesn't mean cheating, that doesn't mean an affair, but we had a, a couple, a lovely couple, they've been married 16 years. Their 12-year-old daughter, they can't make a decision without her. This is a New York Times article, by the way. I don't want anybody to think, okay, what is this tabloid? No. New York Times article that was written from this perspective of this um, Upper West Side New York couple, I believe they're from, and their 12-year-old daughter, they can't pick dinner. They they get into a fight. She's like, wait a minute, who's fighting? She's in the middle. And, and I grew up with people say, you get to have grown folks conversation. They live the opposite of that. But then we had Jamil, this young man and, and his wife, and he's addicted to video games. He loves video games. And I set up the story. And the audience is like mm, groaning at him, like, again, like tabloid TV. I'm like, what? And then he gets out and he explains that it was his connection to his father who died and that his dad gave him, a, a, I think it was a Sega Genesis when he was a little boy or something like that, like an early old school game. And it was a building block between he and his father. And I watched the audience whole view change. Now, they did say you plan too many hours because you have a wife, sir. But. It was this moment that if I were in the studio alone, I would not have felt that energy. And he reacted to the audience. So it was great. So that's the biggest change. I think season three is the feel of having one of the Ten Commandments of daytime TV. My son's name is Moses. And you have to have an audience. So that commandment is back in place. And it's been a it's been a great benefit to my experience as a host. And I think the audience experience watching the show. You know, daytime TV is a different audience. And when I did Sports Center, I found being on at six o'clock versus we were on at noon during the daytime, a lot different. So what ha have you learned about the daytime audience? Is this, you know, this is not an easy time slot to be in. You know what? I've tried not to study it because I think if you study it, you'll get into stereotypes. For example, when people say the Midwest, that's a code for white. 
And I'm like, I lived in Chicago. That's the Midwest. Too. Right. I'm right? from so, Detroit. That's the Midwest. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I don't get into those things about, okay, who the audience is. I know it's primarily white women that watch daytime TV. However, my show over indexes in women of color and women. So we're, I think it's 60, 40, 60% are black women, 40% are white women, but statistically they're just more white viewers, period. And so, but in daytime, what people used to do, I felt when I started pitching this show, when they talked about daytime audience, there was a stereotype of a woman of color, not employed. And so when they would say black women watch daytime, they weren't talking about our whole circle of black women friends that we know that might work two jobs, may not have a job, whatever. This It wasn't a complete circle. So when people say, well, black women watch daytime TV, I'm like, you be careful how you say that because I've been in rooms where that is not a compliment. They think it is a stereotype of DNA tests. That's why, look at the kind of daytime TV for a minute that exists. And it was counter to what we saw with Oprah. You know, these writers and authors and people like yourself and me on that we would watch. You know, you might not like every show, but you were watching. And so I did walk into rooms where I felt that there was a conversation that was unflattering about daytime viewers, that it was, hmm, who's watching daytime? And again, going back to season three and the kind of conversations I wanted to have and our Tamron Hall Let's Get Lit Club, that wasn't just about having another book club because everybody got a book club but introducing a wide swath of authors and having a conversation on the show, which you so graciously accepted. Um, and I wanted it to go longer because I didn't feel I did a great, I didn't, that was one of the shows I felt like I, I could have done better. And that was the conversation of women of color and white women. Right. And so those are the shows that I pitched when I pitched the, this Tamron Hall show that kind of topical. And there were people who said, you know, the daytime audience is different. And I didn't like how they were speaking about the daytime audience. And with each season, two things have been proven wrong so far, knock on wood, I'm still standing, is that people have a tolerance for hour-long topicals, which I was told they didn't, and that we can have these heavy conversations, like the conversations that women of color have versus white women, and us getting on and talking about what we're really saying with our friends. And so that's why I'm so careful about this identity of the daytime audience, because I think what you and I are talking about wasn't always what I heard in executive offices when discussing daytime audience. So uh, since you do have a book club, you're going to put your own book in there. <laughs> Funny, you should mention it. Oh, look at that. <laughs> look at that. Um, I'm yes. all cheesy with my book in my hand. I swear the only reason I have it because I just had to read passages. Yes. Uh, I don't know if I'll have my own book because I don't know how to navigate those waters. You don't feel like I'm like hawking my stuff. Like here's my coffee mug for nine ninety nine. Girl, you better I hawk wrote- that book. <laughs> Listen, my publisher is like, you better get out of here. No, I um, I wrote this book as the Wicked Watch um, over the pandemic period, but it had burned in my soul, honestly, since 1997. Uh, I covered the death of a young white girl in rural Texas. The same year I left Dallas as a reporter ended up in Chicago and covered the death of a young black girl on the south side of Chicago. Both of those cases, the children were wronged. Um, I covered them. I saw the differences in how the media covered them. Um, They both pulled at my heart. They were both 11 years old. And I needed to resolve some of the things I felt emotionally as a reporter. I haven't covered it. And then here we are, ironically, today, questioning how the media is covering the disappearance of an innocent girl 
whose life was cut short, who's white, but it doesn't feel right when we watch the coverage like of what's happening. And so this book delves into who do we see as a victim? Who gets to make the headline and what's happening behind the scenes as Jordan starts to follow this case. And so I wrote this book over a year ago. And today we're having this conversation right now about the media and the lens at which it chooses to see who's a victim. And this book talks about that. And I had obviously no idea that we'd be here again. What made you decide to do fiction? Because I think people would assume you would delve into nonfiction and write about some specter of your life or motherhood or something else. Why fiction? Why not? Right. I didn't I didn't wasn't compelled. I mean, people ask me to do beauty books, memoirs and how to get back up when you get and all that. And I am and I will write my memoir one day. Absolutely. And I have a children's book already sold that one day we'll come back on. Hopefully talk to you about that. So I have a lot of exciting things. But this was something that I I felt compelled, much like I said, with the talk show and starting out with uh, the conversation on masks and taking my show this season into that direction. I always wanted it to go with the news angle um, in daytime. And so I, I, there was no other choice but this book. It's set in Chicago. Jordan Manning, people ask me how I came up with the name, Michael Jordan, Manning Brothers. What? Just, I don't know why. I'm like, these things are coming to me all night, right? I have no idea. I didn't even put that together, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. I was like, how, I don't even know. So I wrote it. You know, it takes you into the personal life of Jordan Manning. She's kind of Angela Bassett meets Carrie Bradshaw meets me, meets you. All of these kind of stories of our lives and juggling her personal life while reporting as well. Um, having her friend circle um, from childhood on and, and it got a little girl's trip tone in it as well. But at the core of it, it is this forensic scientist who enters the world of journalism. And some of the things that she hears and sees in the newsroom that make her uncomfortable and the things she hears and sees on the streets of covering the death of Macy James and following that case. And so that's the story. And it's a series. Uh, I grew up with Nancy Drew books under my bed. So I visualize this already as, you know, a multi-tier, multi-part series. I've started the second so far and um, I'm pausing so that I can wait for the reaction after October 26th to this one. So I got me to make some changes. My first novel. I'm like, wait a minute. So I was all, I was really writing my second one. I'm into it. I'm like, you might be getting ahead of yourself. You can stop and wait for the reaction. So the reviews so far have been phenomenal. And um, it's not a labor of love because it wasn't laborious to do. The hardest part has been just marketing because I, I know TV. I don't know how to market a book. So at first I was like, well, just read it. They were like, no, you got to tell people about the book. I'm like, oh, okay. So let me read a page. And so we've been having fun with that. I never realized and could have imagined that it would be this relevant 20, 30 days before its release. That sort of makes me feel bad here. You saying that the process, it sounds like you enjoyed it. My book is coming out next year and it's been delayed partly because of the, the pandemic. The process uh, reminds me of an adage I've often heard about writing which is, uh, I like having written. I don't like the writing, right? There's a, there's a big difference, right? I like it when it's done. I'm writing that down. Yes. I'm writing that down now. <laughs> I don't like to write. I like having written is the way that it goes. I get that. I, I get that too. I think it's because this is inspired by cases I covered and that, you know, there were things I wish I could have said and done as a reporter back then that I couldn't, right? You're a reporter you have to stay in a lane. And... I wish there were things that this character Jordan says about these cases. And I 
I towed the line of 1997. I was 27 years old, just getting into business, right? So it gives me an opportunity to exercise some demons that I now with this talk show don't, I don't allow to restrict me from saying what I want to say. You know, you know, we've been there where, you you know, I I think muzzled is a strong word um, because we know people who have been muzzled, but we have certainly been um, not encouraged to always speak our truth. And I don't mean politically. I just mean in general. I mean, people often go to the, oh, the political. No, no, no. I mean, in general, we as women have not, and women of color, black women have not always encouraged to be ourselves. And when we are often misinterpreted as angry or bossy or, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we know all that. And I want to talk about that nonsense. But at the end of the day, this character at her young point in her career is quite enviable as far as things I wish I'd said. Well, it's interesting because um, in the intro, I say that you embody a principle I try to impart to younger journalists, which is what's for you is for you, right? Because uh, you went through a very public career transition. And I guess now that you've had some time to move away from it, I'm wondering how you look at that now versus how you looked at it in the moment. You know what, Jamil? And I don't say this to act like I'm above it or move past it. The only thing about it that I even think about, and this sounds so terrible, is that there was a $69 million check that wasn't available to me. I don't care about the rest. I mean, that. I mean, I, that's all I care about. No, that does not sound terrible at all. Okay, trust me. That's some real shit right there. I'm like, I could have saved my whole little Luling, Texas and built a community center and honor my grandfather. And I still plan to do that. But it's not that it's behind me. I just don't even care. I, I mean, I went through this emotional roller coaster. Of course, I've, I've worked since I was 14. I made some promises to myself that I would never walk into an executive's office again who knew the facts and tried to plead my case. I will never walk in and go, but these are my ratings. And I worked 16 shows that weekend. That I won't do. And if that means that I have to change an industry, then okay. But that I won't do again. Some people say, don't say what you won't do. I won't do that. Now, I will go in and pitch a show. I will bring the data of my show. But the way that I I positioned uh, myself at that time, meaning I didn't grovel, but I, I think I did. I probably was like, wait a minute, don't you see? I, you know, like Sally feels you like me. You really do. And I'm like, I'm not reenacting that um, moment. But I care about what I'm doing right now. And I don't, for example, though, let people erase it. So I was at an event and they did, they, the person said, should we not say that you were the first black woman on Today Show? I'm like, you better say it because I was. I earned that title. I earned that spot. And listen, if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be here. But I am like done with the life lessons of it. I really am. I'm like, because I... I didn't do anything to learn from. Maybe other people learned some things. I was petty on your behalf when they got Miss So and So <laughs> up out the paint. I was like, but that's what y'all get. And I wasn't afraid to I wasn't afraid to say it. <laughs> I know. And it wasn't even that I was afraid. I just felt like, you know this, for us to be unbothered, we truly have to focus on the next task at hand. And just like writing your book, think you get it done. You know, I we can't be looking back at there are lessons that I, I want to teach to the next generation of journalists. Like I told my husband, I, I one day, my next chapter, and I even told my publicist, I'd love to teach a class at Howard or Temple and my alma mater and talk about what is power? 
And how do you use it when you have it? Because we both have had it and didn't know. We didn't know we had it. And we didn't always know how to use it in this industry. And so for me, I'd like for that to be a part of my next chapter. So therefore, I might revisit some of those events because it's in perspective of power. I had power when I walked into that office. I didn't know it. What did I have? What did Jamil Hill have when she decided, I'm going to take my talents elsewhere? We applauded and LeBron and other people when they know their power. We haven't always put ours on the court. That's the part of the conversation I like, right? Because once you realize you had power, you became a multi-hyphenated person. I remember being in Chicago the first time I saw you, my then boyfriend was watching and I was like, oh my God, like I was so excited about you. And I think I tweeted and you didn't even tweet me back. And I'm like, woman, I followed you. So it was a long time. I'm past it. I'm past that bit of stage. But I saw a force of nature. And I remember when I was starting on this business and someone said to me, you'll be able to write your own ticket. I did not know what that meant. And people said, and you think it's like some Hollywood, you'll be able to write your own ticket. Ta, ta, ta. But I remember looking at you thinking, she can be anything she wants to be in this business. Like she will write her own ticket. And this was pre a lot of other things that happened. But I saw the words that were uttered to me in the presence of you. You will write your own ticket. And that means letting go of the past. It means letting go of other things because that also holds you back. And sometimes I think people want you to keep reflecting on what had happened to me. And instead of, we all saw that movie. Now I'm on to the sequel. I'm on to the next one. And I think that that's why I love celebrating you. And I, that's why people have rooted for both of us, quite honestly, because we didn't keep belaboring it. You said to the important buzzword, you said the word unbothered. And this is a question I ask every guest on the show, which is when did you become unbothered? Oh, I'm still bothered by a two-year-old who threw a macaroni at me last <laughs> night. I was like, boy, you lucky this ain't the South 1950. Uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, we there now? Is that where we are in this relationship, Moses? A lot of things still bother me. I want to have the success that I desire. I don't know what that quite means. I don't know if that means like both of us have Emmys behind us. We're like, look at this Emmy. So I don't know if it means that anymore. Although I'd like more, but I have one. So I can at least say I have one. Um, and obviously I'm competitive. Like you, we're a competitive creature. So we want to win. We want to, you want to have the most listened to podcasts. I want to have the most watched TV. We want big contracts. We want, you know, a, a leak story with a bunch of dollar signs behind our head. Of course, why can't I? Everybody wants that. So I'm still competitive. I ran track my whole life. So I'm still a competitor about the business. But I think the difference, I believe, and I don't want to speak for you, what makes me unbothered now is I don't have to prove anything. I don't. I don't have to prove anything. Life owes me nothing. And I am unbothered because of that. That is what I try to tell people. It's like, unbothered is a state of mind. It doesn't mean that things don't still annoy you and piss you off. Yeah, of course they do. You're human. But it does mean that you've reached this sort of zen point where you just don't give a fuck anymore. You're like, listen, it is what it is. It is what it is. Or you have perspective, right? Before I would care and I couldn't walk away. It would keep me up at night. But I've learned to be more aware of the fights I need to fight and the ones I don't. And don't get me wrong, if, if it rises to the occasion, 
I will rise up out of a seat, <laughs> but I don't have to, right? I don't have to. And that's going back to what I said, a part of my next chapter, I hope is teaching a class um, to the next generation of journalists like us about power, because journalism is a powerful profession and it can and does affect change. And using that power to go on to brand yourself, because I always tell people in this business, you're either going to quit them or they're going to quit you. So what, what happens when you get quit? Do you write a book? Do you create whatever the next podcast, whatever the next thing is in the future of the medium? Because so often we are the lagging indicator, right? You have all these other podcasts that have taken off and being so familiar. And we're just like, okay, podcast, let us get in now, you know, our books, you know, multi-hyphenated branding power in this industry is uh, the next chapter that I'd like to talk about. Well, uh, what I like to talk about next is some fun stuff um, before we get you out of here. Okay. This is a game I play with every guest on here. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can get with I give you two choices and you have to pick one. Okay. Okay. That's just the way it is. All right. Um, salty or sweet? Sweet. <laughs> Peanut butter, banana honey, and almond milk shake. Or soy white mocha. Oh, you must know my. Did you? I I do both of those. I know. This is called research, Tamron. Research. Oh, geez. Well, I am with a journalist, one of the best, award-winning. Jeez. Um, the 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 peanut butter shake because I drank those pretty much every day of my pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, when I saw that, I was like, all that together, huh? In a shake. It's delicious. Try it. Uh, okay. Um, sweet potato pie or red velvet cake. Sweet potato pie, because my dad taught me to make it before he passed away. So any secrets you want to share with us to making a great sweet potato pie? Keep tasting it while you're cooking it. Like even with the raw eggs, just go get salmonella. Just keep tasting it. Don't put that thing in that oven without keep tasting it. <laughs> now, I, I know you you had a personal relationship with the artists that I'm about to mention in terms of their music. So, of course, I have to put you on the spot. Little Red Corvette or 1999? Little Red Corvette, because it's the only time he ever wore jeans. And he basically forbid me from wearing jeans. And I haven't worn jeans in, oh, my gosh. Other than a couple of shoots, I don't wear jeans because the Little Red Corvette person <laughs> said, why would a woman put something so hard on a soft body? What? You have to unpack the rest on another day. Okay, yeah. all right. I'm, I'm going to let that one dangle out there. <laughs> Um, but there is a follow-up, not about that necessarily. Um, I know you've been very protective of your relationship with Prince, but uh, how often do you still think about him? Countless. I don't, well, he never celebrated his birthday. So that's why I never really post anything on his birthday. And then I think the first time I said something about the anniversary of his passing, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't like talking about it because it is such, such a painful loss for me still. And one, I still um, trying to process personally and emotionally and still move on with my life. Right. And so it's tough. But uh, I think about him all the time. I think about what he would say about what I wore on the show today and the guests that they had all. Why are you talking to him? Or, or you know, I, particularly I would I laugh about what he would say about some of the things that I wear. So it comes with both. It comes with great sadness, but it comes with fun, too, because he. Probably would have a lot of a lot of shady. I know you use his meme a lot with the arrow. That was real. I I am here to tell you, if no one else to tell you, those memes with him wrong, that is all day, every day. You have never met a person who shades the way that he shades. Oh. You will never meet another one. That's all real. 
you love to hear it for sure. And finally, and I have a feeling this might be the toughest one, so I'm just going to warn you now. Moses' giggle or his smile? Oh, that's tough. I think it's his giggle because <laughs> he has a very mischievous giggle. And even like when he threw that macaroni and I looked and he started laughing. I'm like, what? <laughs> Let me tell you something, brother. You, you turn five. It's all going to change. But <laughs> but he has a great he has a great laugh. And it is, it is a joy to um, have this part of my life be real. So who do you think going forward is going to be um, the good cop and the bad cop, you or your husband? <laughs> oh, me. I'm the bad cop. It's already my husband. Oh, please. I have a picture right now that I took. We took him day two of school and they only let one parent in. He dropped to the sidewalk in the middle of New York City. And you should see my husband struggling. I was embarrassed for him. I had to get out the car. Bessie in the Tennessee, park it, get out. I was that mom on the streets of New York because my husband could not handle the two-year-old. Meanwhile, I'm talking all this trash. You should have seen me at soccer. He had a meltdown. I left in tears. I had to call my mom. Something's wrong, right? Hey, this is meltdown. So I don't know, but I think I'm a, my husband, I don't think he can bring it. I still have a little Southern mama in me. He doesn't have. All he can talk about is wanting to go see the Yankees and eat hot dogs one day. I'm like, listen, time out. It's coming soon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I have a feeling you both are going to probably struggle in that area of being the the disciplinarian. Probably. That's why I'm happy my mother is coming. See, she'll lay down the law. I I pick up the phone, Jamel. I'm like, Granny's on the phone. (laughs) Mom, (laughs) we're already at that stage in the game. Let me call Granny right now. Hello, Granny. I do that to my son dang already <laughs> already friend and if you want a loan out to your old he's available y'all can y'all can handle it yeah y'all you yeah, got we'll it go. we'll give it some time <laughs> maybe about like seven eight then yeah that's my sweet spot that's my sweet spot right there <laughs> you're not in it to win it you're not in it to win it <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to go with where my gifts lie and it's like seven <laughs> or eight that's where it is um well listen Tim, we got to get you out of here thank you so much for joining me i know this is a busy time for you with what you have going on with the show you have the book coming out october 26 everybody read it i know i certainly will for sure because i love fiction novels And you have my heart. We have a fiction novel based off a journalist. So for sure, I'll be reading it. But thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Thank you. And it's an honor to share space with you. You are gracious and brilliant. Congratulations on everything and all of the things in store. So I can't wait to read your book when it comes out. Tamara's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Almost every day on the Bird app, and that would be Twitter, somebody or some platform proposes a ridiculous question or scenario that is so infuriating, so mind-blowingly dumb, that even though you know it's a cry for attention, you have to use your powers to ensure that people don't start buying into the foolishness. A platform called Rap TV recently threw this question out to the Twitterverse. And warning, please brace yourself. The tweet was, 
is Drake in 2021 bigger than Michael Jackson at his peak? That tweet was worse than anything $200 date or LLC Twitter could come up with. And fuck it, I'm bothered not just by the premise for the mere suggestion for the unabashed ignorance, but I'm also bothered by the fact that by default, it's going to make it sound as if I'm disrespecting an artist I like and respect. So let me go ahead and get this out the way now. Drake is the best hit maker in hip hop history. Hip hop purists may not like it, but he has the resume to support a strong case for him being in the top five of all time hip hop artists. As the wonderful forever first lady, Michelle Obama once said, it is what it is. The reason this Michael Jackson versus Drake debate even surfaced is because Billboard released an article announcing that Drake has now beat Michael Jackson's record for most top 10 hits on the same album. Michael Jackson has seven top 10 hits on Thriller, but Drake's latest album, Certified Lover Boy, already has nine top 10 hits. On top of that, Drake also took down a record set by the Beatles, who until now were the only act to ever sweep the top five in one week. No question, Drake is that dude. But bigger than Michael Jackson, Jamon. Michael Jackson has been famous since he was five years old. He was still eating Play-Doh and he had grown ass women fainting over him. He became the most famous man in the world without the benefit of the Internet for much of his life and career. The Thriller video by itself was a cultural phenomenon. When that video premiered, he shut the world down. It was MTV's first world premiere video ever. And it was the video that finally broke the color barrier for black artists on that network. Drake has accomplished a lot, but he hasn't done anything that was bigger than Thriller. Michael Jackson would have adult men in Paris crying in tears just because they got a glimpse of him on a hotel balcony. You could go to a remote village in Ubekistan right now and they would know who Michael Jackson is. They'd be looking at Drake like, who this? Michael Jackson was out here hanging out with Nelson Mandela, the Dalai Lama, Queen Elizabeth. He was friends with Princess Diana. Meanwhile, I just saw on Instagram Drake having dinner with Fat Joe. Jamon. Michael Jackson was the most famous person on earth practically every year of his adulthood. And even dead, he's still the most famous entertainer of all time. Bottom line is this. This streaming era got some of y'all fucked up and it's going to convince some folks who don't know any better to make some crazy ass arguments. But some of us actually live through the shit. We saint it. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. 
Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fucking Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Boat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. And please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. <laughs> this sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. 